It was December 6th, 2014, and it seemed like there was no way Ohio State was making the inaugural college football playoff. Left for dead after an early season loss to unranked Virginia Tech, the Buckeyes had clawed their way back to sixth in the penultimate rankings. But in the Big Ten Championship, they faced the unenviable task of playing number 11 Wisconsin, while being forced to start their third string quarterback. Even more frightening, well, at least to those of us in the sports analytics field, there was no data or precedent to determine what OSU needed to do to make the big dance. Nothing to predict just how close or how far Urban Meyer's squad was from the teams above them. Amidst all the uncertainty, Ohio State went out and clobbered the Badgers 59 to nothing and shifted their narrative completely. Armed with a shiny conference championship game trophy, plus that impressive margin of victory, the Buckeyes leapt into the top four and into the playoff, a decision that unsurprisingly inspired a fair amount of controversy. The Big 12 was outraged that both of their contenders and conference co-champions, TCU and Baylor, had been left out. By selecting Ohio State, the selection committee implied that an early season loss to a power conference team was no longer the end of the world, but that scheduling cupcakes could be, as those Big 12 schools learned the hard way. As frantic as the fallout of 2014 was, the case of Ohio State helped to clarify what the committee valued. And though there have certainly been snubs and surprises in the four years since, the Buckeye Blueprint is still a great place to start. I'm Paul Michaelman. I'm Ben Shields, and this is CounterPoints, the sports analytics podcast from MIT Sloan Management Review. In this episode, we're sidestepping the committee, and maybe even the controversy, to discover just how predictable the college football playoff can be. CounterPoints is brought to you by Ticketmaster, the world's leading ticketing software and services company. Ticketmaster is trusted by thousands of artists, teams, and venues across 29 countries, connecting more than 1 billion fans and powering half a billion tickets each year. That's 15 tickets per second to live events around the globe. So whether you're grabbing seats to a must-win game, catching the hottest show in town, or giving someone you love an experience they'll remember forever, head over to Ticketmaster for 100% safe, verified tickets to your next unforgettable event. Because live only happens once. In a sport famous for its miracle plays and dramatic endings, it doesn't feel like college football should be predictable year in and year out. But in the five years of the college football playoff era, a few trends have emerged in the data that suggest it's more predictable than we might think. While winning all of your games is still the most foolproof way to get in, all apologies to a certain major state university in Orlando, Florida, having a blemish on your resume is not a death knell there are plenty of other factors that will swing a school in or out of the top four. In this week's interview, Ben speaks with University of Wisconsin-Madison professor and Badger bracketologist Laura Albert about her CFP predictive modeling and what lessons can be gleaned from the other major college playoff tournament, March Madness, in determining postseason college football rankings. Laura, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I think your research is very relevant to so many college football fans that are wondering, how can their team make the college football playoff next season? What does it need to do? Well, 
based on some of my modeling efforts, and we'll describe those in a minute. But before we jump into the details, there is a, a bit of a formula here. Um, one is be in a major conference. That's one thing that a team should do. Uh, the second thing is they should have a pretty challenging schedule, but maybe not too challenging because they only want to lose one game. And that's even slightly nuanced. They don't want to lose the wrong game because they need to make it to their conference championship game and then win it. And that's pretty much the formula. So that sounds relatively simple enough, obviously more difficult to achieve, right? Right. So help us understand how you arrived at this conclusion. What what data do you use? And sure, I, I just do this using the math and using the data. And I think that's a lot of fun. Um, the data I use is just pretty simple data. I like to actually teach topics like sports analytics in the classroom. And so the data I use is just simple. It's the games that were played and the scores and really the score differential and where the game was played. Um, so that is home, away, or neutral setting. And then I do look at the, the teams that played, that specific matchup that's embedded in the model because the strength of schedule really matters and who you beat and who beats you uh, is, is really important information. And that gives me just a few data points. Each team plays about 12 games over the course of the season. And I can get a pretty good ranking that matches an expert's ranking after just a few games. So usually about seven or eight is adequate. And I've got to say that I think that's really beautiful and amazing that just we could do that just with mathematical models is that we could get a ranking that looks like it was generated by an expert with just a few data points. Laura, that to me is really quite striking that in this era of big data, that you're telling me that you can be fairly consistent with expert rankings and with the teams that actually make the playoff just through a few data points. That's pretty striking. It is. And I guess I'm saying big data is overrated a little bit. You know, I, of course, in a lot of actual applications, big data helps us do things we've never done before. But I think what's lost in discussion is just how powerful a few data points can be if they're the right data points and we look at them the right way. And I think that really comes through in ranking college football teams. Okay, so that's interesting. You say if you have quality data and you look at them in the right way. So I want to turn a little bit to the models that you have been developing to understand the college football playoff. Can you explain your model in a way that is understandable for our listeners? Sure. Um, I base my models on Markov chains, and Markov chain is a mathematical model that's used to understand how a system evolves over time. And this is usually a system that has some randomness or some something that's unpredictable in it. So it's often used to model the stock market and the spread of disease. And it's also used to rank sports teams or just solve ranking problems in general. And the idea here is in a Markov chain, it's a math model, right? So it's not really an equation, but there's a series of equations, series of linear, it's a linear system. And we move from team to team. So each team is like a state in the system. And I move to uh, a team. So if I'm in a team, I move to randomly to one of the teams that beats that team. Right. And I keep doing that and I move from team to team. 
an infinite amount of times, right? So I kind of do this over a very long time horizon. And what happens is I'm always going from teams that lose to teams that win. So when I move to teams that win a lot, I visit those the most frequently. And so I measure how frequently I measure these teams. And the teams that win a lot and beat very good teams are the teams I visit the most often. And that's my measure for how I rate a team. And then I just sort those. And the the team that I visit most often is the best team in the country, which is quite often Alabama. Uh, And that helps me rank the teams. And it's pretty amazing. And uh, it's a pretty simple concept, but it seems to, to work really well. Uh, what I do in my model is I that probability that I move from a team from from one team to another, I only can move if they play each other. So that's where that schedule comes into account. And I move probabilistically, so I don't always go from losing teams to winning teams. I can go in either direction. But that probability that I move in one direction versus the other is based on how, Uh, overwhelming that game outcome was. Mm. So it looks at the score differential and where the game was played. So if you win big uh, at an away game, that would be give you a a large probability of the losing team moving to that winning team. Mm. And there's home field advantage, so you don't really get quite as much credit for a home win as an away win. Mm. And that means there's no formula for strength of schedule in a model such as this. Strength of schedule is endogenous to the model, sort of determined on the fly after a bunch of games have been played. And that's sort of the model in a nutshell. And I train the model on historic data and looking at teams that play each other twice in a season or in back-to-back seasons to look at the probability that they'd kind of beat that that team based on a, a score differential in the first game and based on where that first game was played. I have to ask you, are you creating multiple different types of ranking models as part of this work? Yeah. So if you look at that basic approach, there's some different things you can try out in that framework. And I've done that. While the models mostly agree, there are some differences, especially Mm. if you look at that fourth team to make it in the playoff. You know, there's a big difference between being ranked fourth and being ranked fifth, right? You're in the playoff, you're out of the playoff. And I started tinkering around with some of that, and I was hard to determine which model was really right. You know, you never really know. Mm-hmm. Uh, they both say that there's a chance that uh, these teams are really good. And I also started implementing other models that weren't always Markov chain based, um, and those would give me similar but different rankings. And I ended up with a series of rankings. Uh, that I used to rank the sports teams. And what I did was I kind of wrapped a Markov chain around my Markov chains. <laughs> and uh, that helped look at the areas of go- agreement and also disagreement between the rankings. And in that case, generally, all teams sort of usually move towards Alabama, whoever is the top ranked team. But that helps me combine different ranking methods and give me sort of like an Uber ranking. Uh, that takes into account several different ideas in terms of ranking. And I find that to be a little bit more robust to any like one single game outcome. And I really struggle with what to do with these games with the wild endings. Cause as you know, in college football, you know, one game means one loss can mean you're out of the playoff. And 
sometimes those losses can be kind of weighed pretty heavily in any single ranking. And if I do a few things, a few different rankings, and I combine them, then it's a little bit more of a robust way to take some of those data points into account. So, Laura, how long have you been analyzing the college football playoff for how many seasons? I have been doing it since the beginning. So I think that's about five playoffs since 2014. And the results of your modeling have been fairly consistent with the four teams that make it. Is that correct? That's true. So I think I just disagreed maybe once when Alabama made it in two years ago when they did not win the, or they didn't even um, make it into the SEC college championship game. And we had an um, undefeated Central Florida team. Uh, So at the end of the season, I'm showing a lot of agreement with what the committee does. And I just, you know, I just run a little math in the background. I don't have to get together and and meet and do all this work every week. (laughs) So I don't know. I think I'm more efficiently coming to the same conclusions. The the power of math. Well, let you, since you mentioned math indeed. Yeah. Since you mentioned UCF, what are you saying to UCF fans? What is your message to them? My message is I would have put them in the playoff that year. I actually think. Uh, the committee didn't get it right that year. But I did go back and look at that season in particular. And I will say at this point, I don't only rank, I also forecast. So the ranking is sort of, it's descriptive. It's just describing the past and who are the best teams right now. And the forecasts look into the future. And the forecasts are really, really interesting because I take the remaining schedule into account. I simulate that thousands of times. And then based on the remaining schedule and what happens in that simulation, different teams may make it into the conference championship games, and I can simulate those. And then I can look at the who might be the, you know, the top four ranked teams at the end of the season in the forecast. And if I do that many times, I really see some interesting patterns in terms of strength of schedule and the remaining schedule, and also the importance of making it into the conference championship game, which I alluded to earlier. Okay, so what does all that have to do with Central Florida? Uh, I looked at that season uh, many times, and I looked at the forecasts that I was generating well before the season was over. So UCF was undefeated at any point in the season, but they, in the middle of the season, there was still a good chance that they could lose a game before the season was up. And when I looked at the forecasts, I found that they would never even have a, a small chance of making it into the playoff until really the end of the season. And that was a little surprising to me. I was thought they would always have you know, a, a pretty reasonable chance, maybe being in my top 10 teams to make the playoff with four or five weeks to go. Uh, but they really weren't. And that's because of the strength of the schedule just wasn't there for them. I had them ranked fifth at the end of the season. And I had Wisconsin ranked fourth. Uh, Wisconsin didn't make it into the playoff because they had an undisputed season but lost the Big Ten Conference championship game to Ohio State. And I would agree Wisconsin shouldn't have made it into the playoff because that was the one game you absolutely cannot lose, although they lost a close, one close game in the entire season, which is why they were ranked fourth. Um, So I would have put UCF in as they were in my fifth ranked team. But I do recognize that it is hard to justify a team like Central Florida making it into the playoff. I never really had, I never had them ranked more than fifth that entire season, despite their undefeated record. Uh, And that's where we come back to the factors that 
explain a team's ability to make it into the playoff. In that year, I think they might have been ranked even lower had that not been an easy year to get into the playoff. There were, uh, uh, I think that was the only year where a team that lost or didn't make it into its, the first time a team that didn't make it into its conference championship game was invited to the playoff. So the the committee kind of dug kind of deep for Alabama and really only let them in because other teams like Wisconsin lost. Yes, I'm sure, especially among UCF fans, that even though the math might be on their side, in the end, they didn't get their wish. Nevertheless, that's the way sports sometimes turns out. I want to ask you one final question about the college football playoff before moving on to your work with March Madness, and that is, what implications, if any, would predicting the college football playoff have if it expands to eight teams? Oh, well, I think that is really interesting if it expands to eight teams. And in that case, it might not have quite the same formula for picking the teams, which I like right now, is that any four teams could make it into the playoff. And that's why I also wish UCF had made it in, is that there aren't automatic bids. And maybe that's something that would would occur once we start expanding uh, the playoff. I think it's more exciting if different teams make it in from year to year as a fan, uh, unless it's my team. You know, <laughs> I like to see a mix of different teams. And as a professor, I would like to say you know, those four extra teams in the playoff, they, that would take some time away from academics. And I'd like to th- see that be part of the conversation, even if we end up expanding the playoff to eight teams. Um, but from looking at the rankings, it's really hard and it's kind of fragile to make it in those top four, four teams every year. And so there are teams that are perennially good, Alabama, Ohio State, and they're not in the playoff every year. I guess Alabama's had a good recent run. Indeed. And if we expand to eight teams, I think Alabama's always finished in the top eight of my rankings. You know, that might make it a little less exciting and less, you know, exciting for from the fan perspective. I think probably is some correlation to having different teams in the playoff and the excitement of the playoffs. Um, but almost certainly the, the true best team would probably have a better chance to win the overall conference champ, uh, football championship. Speaking of playoff systems that lead to sometimes fluky wins or unlucky losses, let's turn now to March Madness, which I know you've mm-hmm. done some work on in terms of uh, predicting as well. So how do you approach March Madness predictions in the same ways as the college football playoff and and maybe what's different about your approach as well? Sure. So what I do for March Madness, and first of all, I'll say I only rank the men's basketball team. I haven't looked at the women's yet, although I know I should. There's only so many hours in the day. Um, But what I do is I just rank the teams. I don't do a forecasting element. And the reason I don't for March Madness is because of the automatic bids that I mentioned earlier. Uh, I don't end up forecasting the rest of the season. But it's the same basic idea in terms of ranking the teams. And I had seen different math models for ranking men's basketball teams before I started with, with football. One of the differences is that there are about 30 games in a season versus about, you know, 11 or maybe 12 when I started with football. So there's many more games. There's more crossover games with different conferences in basketball. And so usually with what we see with data is 
you know, the more data means you can make a better prediction, right? We're always trying to get some sense of the true underlying rankings, right? Because we never really know who the best is, right? We just see, have some evidence of the best. We always have the sample, which is really what games have been played and what were their outcomes. Um, and I, that's also why I was so surprised in football that we can get such good rankings so quickly mm-hmm. compared to basketball where they have they have many more games. I thought it wouldn't really be possible with, in football with such a short season. So what I guess I'm saying is that there are a lot of similarities between ranking football and ranking basketball teams. What's different is the data, mm. right? So the scores are different, the scoring differentials, the, the kind of parity that we see. You know, in basketball, they many teams in the same conference play each other twice. And so you can see how often a team will win both of those games in that two-game series over the, the course of the season. I thought there would be a lot more correlation there than there actually is in the data. And when I give talks on this, I show scatter plots. And it's always like this, the most shocking visual in my talk. It's like, <laughs> what? You win, you win by 20 points at home and you only have like a 62% chance of winning your next game if I just look <laughs> at the data. And, and that's pretty surprising how, how random it can be, mm-hmm. uh, even if these are the same teams and the same players, uh, just playing twice. Um, and so I just train the model on different data, but the same underlying dynamics is really useful in, in ranking basketball teams. And Laura, the results of your work on ranking basketball teams, I assume it's relatively close to some of the other ranking systems. Is that correct? It's not bad. And I will say that there are about three times as many Division One basketball teams as football mm-hmm. teams. And so with so many different teams and so many different matchups, you can kind of go up or down by 20 in the rankings mm-hmm. sometimes from ranking to ranking. If you're in the middle of the pack, like if you're at the top or the bottom, those are a little bit more stable. And so that's also been interesting um, in terms of combining the different ranking methods. And the ones that I build, I notice that there's a lot more variability with so many more teams and frankly, uh, you know, many more teams even in, in a conference. Uh, so that's, and you have more, you know, more mid-major, so many mid-major conferences in basketball as well. And the rankings do a good job of trying to like match up equal teams across different conferences. Ranking within a conference is, is much easier because they play so many games with one another. It's pretty uh, straightforward to use different methods and draw similar conclusions, but getting all what, I think it's 352 or 53 teams now. It's getting all those in the right order is is a bit challenging. I don't build a special model with for the tournament itself, which I would love to do, but it's always a really busy time in the semester, and it's hard to collect additional data. But I would like to take uh, collect additional data because in the tournament, those teams are maybe not the team they've been all season. Uh, there have been injuries, and so you can look at additional data points you also have a lot of travel or not a lot of travel in the tournament which affects the outcomes and so we can kind of hone in on actual win probabilities a little bit more in the tournament so when I fill out my bracket I I do look at my rankings and they're surprisingly pretty informative of who might win and which upsets are are likely to be called I can see that you know mid-major teams that are ranked very highly like Loyola two years ago uh, they were ranked like 27th in my ranking, which is really, really high for a mid-major team. And lo and behold, they went to the Final Four. Uh, those are the types of things I can see from the rankings. Mm-hmm. Did you have Loyola going far in the tournament based on your rankings? I guess the other, the other, the other way of putting <laughs> yeah. the question is: Do you follow your own advice? Well, 
I do follow my own advice, but I didn't have them in the in the final four because I thought there was more likely teams to make it in the mm-hmm. final four. And it's always a balance to try to get the most points versus kind of right. call these the right uh, obscure events. And so usually my my brackets are pretty chalky, I will say. But uh, I try to get I try to do a little bit better in the in the final four and really identify the best team to come from from each region. Yeah. That's a great strategy. All right, so you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but I'm curious, thinking about your work with the college football playoff and or March Madness, what additional data and or techniques would improve your work on either of these prediction exercises? First of all, I should say I'm, you know, as you mentioned before, I'm a college professor. I teach these methods in the classroom. I really like to do that. So I'm always a little bit biased towards methods that I can bring into the classroom and talk about them. Markov chains are very flexible and they are, are really useful, but there are a number of other data science techniques that we can use to rank sports teams. I've talked about you know, Kali matrices and uh, in the classroom Pythagorean scoring is a way to rank sports teams. I haven't looked yet at speed of play, which is pretty important for basketball, and explained some of the, the point differentials. And so I can you know, fine-tune that a little bit uh, based on the statistics reflects speed of play and uh, probably should be taken into account. So I'm always um, interested in some of those, those data points, but I ultimately like to talk about things in the classroom and then be able to explain explain the, the ideas to people who don't like sports, which is like half the class <laughs> quite often. Um, but for very specific outcomes, like specific team matchups, I would look at things like injuries. Injuries are so hard to, to model. Anything that looks at data is ultimately a reflection of the past. And when you have a sudden injury, all of a sudden the past is no longer really predictive of the future. And that's always a challenge in some of the models. Uh, but being able to look at you know, the effect of injuries over a longer time uh, is something that, that, that could be taken into account. Also, things like coach experience and team experience, preseason rankings, how a team did uh, just the previous season. These are all things that can be uh, predictive and can inform decisions if you really want to like, bet on the games. Um, but I'm just, I just kind of do it for fun. And then for specific sports, you can actually look at the structure of the game. And so I've been starting to look at, you know, volleyball data, which, you know, the players, the players rotate and they switch from the front to the back. And there's a lot of structure in the game, much like in uh, baseball. And taking that structure into account really helps us really quantify the value of doing very specific things, like putting this person in and this part of the lineup. I want to end because... You certainly are a college professor. You're teaching sports analytics as a way to illuminate the value of data science to help in other contexts. So can you talk about some of the analogs between what you're teaching through sports analytics and maybe some other industry problems that some of these uh, methods can help solve? Connect us back to the business world. Sure. I would be happy to do that. So I mentioned Markov chains having a lot of other applications. And this Markov chain idea specifically used for ranking is the basis of Google's page rank algorithm. So it's like an algorithm that changed our world and made information so much easier to find. Right? So you can't really go through the whole internet and read all the internet pages and figure out where the information is. 
Um, but what Google did was instead of wins and losses, they have incoming web links and outgoing web links, and they looked where were they going, right? So that's like our schedule there and our and our outcomes. And they use that to figure out where the information was on the internet without having to read it and without having a human in the loop. So there's this kind of artificial intelligence there. Uh, that idea of ranking and giving somebody like top rank suggestions is something that a lot of, you know, people that are trying to sell you something on the internet or some ads and whatnot, they will potentially recommend some other products to you based on maybe what you've clicked at or what you've, you've looked at. So they can offer you some products and see where you want to go, and that becomes like a schedule that you create, and then that can lead to more products that they, they can recommend for you, which helps you find what you want more easily and leads to them making some more money if you're, if you're happy. Um, in terms of my actual research, I you know, don't really do a lot of predictive models in my research. I actually do a lot of optimization, and I design I use optimization to design and operate public sector systems, so complex systems where there's a lot of interconnected main parts, but there's also a big data-driven aspect of this. Like, how do we do data-driven engineering? How do we design a complex system, like, for the public good? In my case, it's it's been Homeland Security, disaster response, and emergency medical services. So I've looked at how we can do data-driven engineering to look at past data to locate and route uh, a fleet of different types of ambulances to patients with different priorities. And that's actually a pretty complex problem, but one that's that's pretty important and helps mm-hmm. us use our you know, tax dollars more efficiently and more effectively. Well, those are great examples, Laura, and I really appreciate how your work spans not only sports, but industries and problems outside of sports. And yet you are, as an educator, seeing the opportunity to talk about data methods and techniques through the lens of sports. And that brings us back to where we started this conversation, which is the college football playoff is entirely predictable. And I know both of our teams have been rivals over the years, Wisconsin and Northwestern. And I'm hoping that uh, perhaps one of us has a lot to uh, cheer about in this upcoming season. I'd agree with that. That sounds good to me. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing with us your knowledge and expertise. And we'll look forward to the upcoming season. Yes, we will. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. This has been CounterPoints, the sports analytics podcast from MIT Sloan Management Review. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are streamed. If you have an idea for a topic we should cover or a guest we should invite, please drop us a line at counterpoints at mit.edu. Counterpoints is produced by Mary Dew. Our theme music was composed by Matt Reed. Our coordinating producer is Mackenzie Wise. Our crack researcher is Jake Menashe. And our maven of marketing is Desiree Berry.